Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, that means it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Pam Vardy, and we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And looks like it's going to be a nice day as well. And it so, wasn't as cold. No, thank God. Oh, yesterday <laughs> was freezing. We had another big frost yesterday um, morning. Yes, and that wind was really oh. biting yesterday. So, yes, it looks like it's going to be a much nicer day. So, potentially one to get out of bed and go into the garden today, maybe. Gosh, there's an awful lot to be done. Oh, We've had so much, you know, cold weather that it's been very hard to get out there and do anything. Yeah, and, and look, those weeds are still growing. I'm sure everybody's oh. garden beds are full of... Winter grass and oxalis and God knows what else. Oh, so, absolutely. You know, things need to be dealt with at this time of the year so that we can go into the spring without too much stress. But don't <laughs> cut back any frost damage. Oh, yeah, well, it's that's way too soon. Very I mean, I had a frost point. yesterday, so yeah. it's oh, way look, too soon. There'll be lots of frosts going on, and I actually had to warn a client of mine the other day because something had been bitten in their garden and they'd started cutting it back. Oh. Uh, and I said, well, if you do that, it's just going to make it worse because the next frost will get further down the plant. So that's right. Really important not to prune things that are been frosted and just leave them as they are and just just take it on board and say all right well black's the new green um, <laughs> until such time as the the cold weather's really over and then get into those frost damaged plants um, and things should be all right by then I think we're just going to be extra busy next spring <laughs> uh, we will there'll be lots Catching to do up. but uh, look I'm sure spring is always a busy time I don't think it oh, really it matters what sort of spring we have um, uh, it's you know it's one of those times when everything is madly happening, so mm. you've just got to get out there and deal with it. And it's sort of a bit sad because it's the time of the year when there's so much to look at. You often have your face to the ground weeding and doing other things and not the time to actually just swan around looking, <laughs> <laughs> which is part of the joy of gardening is to just do nothing. But, exactly. Uh, uh, unfortunately, spring's not an easy time to do that. No, it isn't. So, anyhow. Never mind. It's, uh, it's all part of the... Rich tapestry of gardening. (laughs) I'm going to get straight into some community announcements because um, surprisingly we do have a couple of things on today and some more coming up uh, in early August. So first up today, uh, the Victorian Orchid Club is having their winter show. It did start yesterday but it's on again today, 9 o'clock through till 4 o'clock. It's in the Wattle Room at the Repatriation Hospital uh, which, of course, is in Heidelberg. You enter via Gate 8 from Waterdale Road. Uh, that's all the information I have on that one. I don't know if it's uh, if there's any entry fee or not, but it's on today, 9 o'clock through till 4 o'clock. Enter via Gate 8 at Waterdale Road. Now, also... Uh, the uh, friends, the growing friends of uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Cranbourne uh, have got a plant sale on today. Again, 10 till 4. Uh, the location is down, of course, at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne, 1000, I mean, Bellato Road in Cranbourne. They've got a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots. Uh, um, the prices start from $3 there, and, of course, that's an opportunity for you to go and have a look around the Australian garden. Now, coming up, uh, there's several things happening uh, thanks to Friends of Burnley Gardens. Now, they're having a special uh, Burnley Field Day. Now, this is all taking place on Saturday, the 5th of August. Uh, there's a pruning workshop, a truffle seminar and a plant sale. 
as well as things like sausage, sizzle, coffee and cakes. So it's all happening on Saturday the 5th of August. Now, uh, first up at uh, in the morning, 10am through to 1pm, there'll be fruit tree pruning with Chris England. Uh, this will be a hands-on workshop, small group for beginners and as a refresher for experienced pruners. Uh, Chris will demonstrate pruning techniques in the Burnley Gardens Orchard and then you'll have a go under his watchful eye. Then in the afternoon, uh, they're running a truffle seminar. Uh, Now, this is being held uh, with uh, Noel Fitzpatrick, who's a well-known truffle consultant, Victorian truffle farmer and Burnley graduate. Now, uh, the seminar is going to cover all aspects of truffle growing, including choosing the right site, soil type, host tree and truffle life cycle. There will also be a discussion and demonstration of the truffle cooking techniques uh, and uh, the seminar will conclude with afternoon tea and truffle tasting. There will also be um, an opportunity to purchase fresh truffles at a discount on the day. Now, this, again, as I said, is Saturday the 5th of August, but this one will be 3 uh, p.m. through till 6 p.m. Now, uh, there is uh, obviously bookings are needed and there is a charge available uh, for both workshops. You can do one or both. And at the same time, there is also going to be um, the uh, sale of uh, plants That's taking place 11am through to 3pm, cash payments only for that plant sale. Now, parking is in Yarra Boulevard, and uh, as I mentioned, you do need to book. Uh, Booking is essential. Uh, If I can just find... uh, Oh, with with the pruning one, you do need to bring uh, clean secateurs. Uh, All plant materials will be provided. Uh, now, you need to book by contacting friends.burnley at gmail.com or their telephone number is 9035-6815. That's 9035-6815. Now, uh, the cost of the pruning demonstration is for members of the Friends Group $50, for non-members $65 and the cost uh, for the truffle uh, seminar is members $65, visitors $80. So uh, as I mentioned, those details for booking, uh, if you uh, email friends.burnley at gmail.com or telephone 9035-6815. Now also... Friends of Burnley uh, Gardens have also got uh, another botanical arts workshop uh, coming up. This is another four sessions. They did run one in July, but this is another four sessions that it's going to be running uh, throughout August. Uh, so it's four sessions of two and a half hours each. The medium will be watercolour paint and or watercolour pencils, small class size, and uh, these workshops are for... Uh, members of the friends group plus others and includes the opportunity to have your botanical illustrations included in a soon-to-be-published book on Burnley Gardens. Uh, Marley Moore is again taking these classes. She's taking them for several years for the friends group now. Now, they will be running on Wednesday the 9th, uh, the 16th, the 23rd and the 30th of August. Time is 10am through to 1230 
the total cost for the four sessions, members of the Friends Group, $200, non-members, $240. It will be held in Quad 4 at the Burnley campus and uh, parking for this event will be in the rear car park off F.R. Smith Drive. Okay, down at Cranbourne again, I mentioned they're having a plant sale today, but they've also got um, a forthcoming botanical art exhibition down there entitled Native Seduction. Now, it's an exhibition of botanical art depicting the fascinating relationship between plants and their pollinators. It will be on display daily in the visitor centre during the month of August. The paintings have been created by the Botanical Illustrators Group of the Cranbourne Friends. Uh, Works by several of their tutors is also included. A variety of mediums and techniques have been used and all paintings are for sale. Commissions from the sales go to supporting the Cranbourne uh, Gardens. Now, in conjunction with that... Um, they're having an afternoon talk which is entitled Fascination of Orchid Pollination with Mitch Smith. Smith. Um, Now this is taking place Sunday the 13th of August, 2 o'clock through till 3.30. It will be held in the Australian Garden Auditorium um, and it's all about um, plants uh, needing their pollinators. Um, Now Mitch Smith has no formal training and he's a self-professed ecologist-environmentalist. The groundbreaking work by Mitch with Rudy Kuta on Victoria's orchid pollinators is believed to be the most comprehensive work to date with pollinators described for approximately 150 species of orchids. Now, uh, Mitch owns uh, Woolnook Native Plant Nursery in Mafra. He works on local revegetation and restoration projects and has accumulated knowledge and insights on many aspects of the environment. Mitch also acts as an advisor to current land managers on environmental matters, mostly to do with orchids and grassland management in his local area. Now, the cost for this talk, members $20, non-members $25, students $10, and to book for this one, Go to uh, www.rbgfriendscranburn, all one word, .org.au. So that's rbgfriendscranburn.org.au and you'll find the link for the talk. Or if you'd like more information, you can phone 8774-2483. Right. There we go. I'm we are. Surprised. Our friends groups are being very busy. Yeah, I'm going to say I was quite surprised there's so much going on still during this cold part of the year. So Absolutely. there you go. Absolutely. Well, yeah. there you go. Now, you've got you've got an announcement too, Steve. Oh, yes. This is an upcoming, so it's not immediate, but it's something that people should be putting in their diaries. Um uh, many of you are aware that the Mount Masseton Horticultural Society has been running a Garden Lovers Fair for, I think we've been going 15 years now, which is wow. a bit frightening. Um, and it's coming up again. The dates are slightly different this year. We normally did it in late September. This year it's at the beginning of October. So it's the 7th and 8th of October. Uh, it's being held again at the Bolabeck Gardens at the bottom of Mount Macedon. And it will also, it'll be obviously well signposted and what have you when you're coming up. But it's 370 Mount Macedon Road. Um, it's uh, you have admission to the car park um, uh, from nine thirty uh, on Saturday and Sunday. It actually starts at ten and runs through to four. Uh, there'll be around about thirty stallholders from all sorts of different parts of the state and even interstate, uh, with a, a huge range of plants and also allied products like tools and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, 
There will be a coffee van there. There will be food available. Uh, the Hort Society will run their own store where they'll be selling produce made by the members. So you'll be able to buy your jar of marmalade or whatever uh, from the Hort Society stand. Uh, there'll be seed available. Uh, so, and of course, you get access to the garden as well. Uh, and you've got some guest speakers. And we've got a range of guest speakers. I think I'm first speaker off the rank on the Saturday morning. Um, so if you're looking to check it out, I mean, the web website is up and running, although it's not completely filled out yet, but a number of the stallholders' profiles are up there, and it's got all the times and things. Uh, there will be availability, I believe, in the next week or so for online ticket purchase as well. This is the first oh. time we're doing that to see how it all Good works. Good idea. Uh, I mean, you'll still be able to purchase tickets at the gate, obviously, when sure. you come in. Uh, and it's $10, which includes going to the fair and also access to the Bollebeck Garden. Uh, so... You could easily spend the whole day there wandering around. In fact, I reckon you could spend a day and a half or two days wandering around because there's so much plant material to see. And, of course, all these growers are coming along who are people who really know their stuff. So you get access to the knowledge of all these people that are growing the plants, not just the plants themselves. Exactly. It's a great opportunity to ask a clematis expert on how to do some sort of pruning on your clematis or uh, management of your clivias or hellebores or... You name it, there'll, you know, there'll be fruit trees, there'll be all sorts of different plant varieties, small bulbs, perennials, uh, a huge range of plant material. So uh, it is a great opportunity to purchase good plants from growers and also get all that information you might want. Uh, I know Attila Capitani is going to be doing a talk at some stage during the weekend. I'll be doing one. I think Carolyn Blackman's going to be doing one. So they're slowly building out quite a dossier of really good speakers. Okay. Um, and I think most of the talks will go for about half to three quarters of an hour so um, you really could easily fill the day you know by the time you sat and listened to a couple of talks went around and had a look at the garden uh, perused all the stalls and did a little retail therapy uh, I think you could easily fill a day just by wandering around there having said that though don't forget to allow a little time perhaps to visit Dixonia Rare Plants during that day Uh, because I'll be up at the nursery there as well so you could come and visit me too so good yeah so the Garden Lovers Fair and the website is is that all the W's dot gardenloversfair.com.au. So it's fairly straightforward, and that's Garden Lovers Fair, all one word, of course. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, go into the website, have a look. Um, we'd like more hits on the website anyway. It helps push it up the, the ladder a bit. So um, uh, go in and see what we're, we're up to. And I think this year we are moving things into a, into a higher level. So it's, uh, it's becoming quite a, a major event now. It certainly is. Mm. That's excellent. Okay. All right. So there you go. All right. Uh, we're going to open up our talkback lines for callers early this morning. If you'd like to uh, join us and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Stephen, let's get straight into some of your plants. All right. Well, I've. Uh, it's. The depths of winter, basically. We're all aware of that. Certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, there's lots of things doing stuff at this time of the year. A garden certainly doesn't have to be boring uh, in the winter. Uh, in fact, I was on 774 yesterday morning and I was talking about variegated foliages as being a um, an adjunct to colour and interest in the winter garden. Mm-hmm. And it caused some interesting sort of phone calls and things because some people didn't know what variegated foliage was and that's fine they found out uh other people don't like variegated 
foliage and some people do like variegated foliage. It's one of those very divisive It does of divide people yeah, very it, much. It really does. So, yes. and, and, it's, and there's not that many people, I think, that are sort of middle ground about it. No, that's right. <clears throat> you tend to find they either love it or they hate it. But but having said that, within the variegation of of plants, there's mm. such a variety of variegation yeah. that some some are just too much, quite honestly, yeah. and some are really pretty. Yeah, and I have to say, if if somebody doesn't like variegation, if you ask them whether they like variegated hostas or variegated grasses, they'll probably say yes. <laughs> somehow right. or another, the the hostas and the grasses tend to somehow. Um, Miss the vulgar section of variegation <laughs> by right. most people's standards. So, <laughs> uh, so people will make allowances for certain plants. Whereas at the other end of the scheme, you've got things like acubas and things that people see as quite vulgar. And yet, I quite like. I, I have to say, I'm very fond of a good old uh, Japanese stardust laurel growing in the shade and looking glowy and uh, and sunny looking. So, well, the thing is, if you've got a really light variegation, mm. it's going to light up a dark corner. So, obviously, in the middle of winter. It's really going. I mean, oh, it's yeah. even going to shine through the fog. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, th- I think variegated foliages are demeaned by far too many people. And apart from anything else, they make you smile. They're fun. Uh, they're not terribly serious plants, I think, <laughs> variegated plants. And, and it's, I find them fun. But I have to say, too, that there's lots of things flowering in the winter. Those who like native plants and grow them in their gardens will know that there's a whole plethora oh, of lovely native plants that are in flower at this time of the year. Lots of grevilleas and corries and oh, you name it, they're coming out. There's... There's wattles coming out all over the place. So there's lots and lots of native plants, but there's also lots of things from Mediterranean climates around the world that flower in the late winter uh, because the climates are generally not so cold as to keep pollinators away completely. So a lot of these plants take advantage of the fact that they're the only ones out. And so the pollinators have to come to their cafe. And so there's oodles of very attractive plants that flower at this time of the year from all over the world. And I'm particularly fond of some of the late winter, early spring bulbs, I have to say, because they're these cheery little things that erupt out of the ground, tend to flower very quickly. They sort of come up and suddenly they're in bloom. So you can often walk out into the garden one day and there's nothing to be seen and you seem to walk out the next day and they're in full flower. Mm. Um, And... um, most of them are small, so they don't take up an awful lot of room, so you can have lots of them. And so for, for us serious collectors out there, you can keep cramming yet another one into the garden. Uh, always find room for another bulb, I find. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I found room for 300 daff- uh, tulip bulbs this year, so um, goodness knows what my garden's going to look like in the spring. But anyhow, uh, I bought three along this morning that are in full flight at this time of the year. One of them is a daffodil. Uh, the pale-coloured forms of the hoop petticoat daffodils are winter-flowering. They're not spring-flowering. So the bright yellow ones tend to be high spring and the paler-colour ones tend to be earlier and earlier. And, in fact, there's one or two little flower in the late autumn that uh, are dead white. Uh, so I don't know why the colour... It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really weird thing. So you get more colour in the flower as you get further into spring and I'm uh, on the different varieties, so I don't quite get it. But this one's a little hybrid narcissus and the hoop petticoats, for those who don't know, are different to your normal daffodils in that the trumpet is the main part of the flower Mm. and the petals behind that you would see on most daffodils and jonquil-type things are reduced to just little tiny narrow things that really don't actually make much impact in the flower. So it's really all about this lovely fluted trumpet. And the one I brought along is a little hybrid one called nylon. And um, it's a sweet little thing. It only grows to a few inches tall, has very fine grassy leaves and these almost pure white um, trumpet-shaped flowers on it. Uh, And I bought one along in a three-inch pot here and it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine flowers and buds 
with probably about that many bulbs in the pot. So, you know, that's damn good value. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, and they're not coming out all at once, so I'll have quite a succession of flowers over a period of weeks. Mm. Um, and because they're low to the ground, small little things, they tend to come through the bad weather quite well. They're not so inclined to be battered down by the rain and things that we tend to get at this time of the year. Um, and they like a sunny, well-drained spot in a, in a rock garden or edge of border. They're not that hard to grow. They're very good in pots. Uh, in fact, a lot of the proper trumpet daffodils do tend to degenerate in pots over a period of time. And so they, they go off the bloom and they break down into little bulbs and the whole thing's just a waste of time in the end. But the hoop petticoats with sort of regular repotting, you know, every two or three years, um, they will just keep bouncing back year after year. And as long as you keep them nice and dry in the summer... Uh, they tend to bloom quite well. And, in fact, if you've got hoop petticoat daffodils in the garden that aren't flowering well, there's two reasons for it. They're either getting too much moisture in the summer when they're dormant, which is often the case when you've got them in garden beds because you're watering everything else, Um, or, in fact, you've got a bad clone. There are some really bad ones out there that were sold over the years that really aren't good flowers. Okay. So if you're getting lots of foliage and very rarely any flowers, you've either got to dry them off in the summer better or chuck them out altogether and start off with some fresh ones that are known to be good flowering clones. Okay. So look at the hoop petticoats. I think they're cute little things. Oh, they are. Um, And as I said, you can get from pure white through to really rich yellows. uh, And some are bigger, some are smaller. Uh, None are huge, so they're all little sort of rock garden-y bulbs, um, and I think they're charming. Mm. So they're well worthwhile looking out for. And the other sort of iconic late winter flowering bulb are the true snowdrops. Oh, yes. Which I just love. A lot of people think of snowflakes as snowdrops in this country, so there's a lot of confusion. So if you've got something that's sort of uh, 30 centimetres or more tall, it's unlikely to be a snowdrop. It's more likely to be a snowflake. And the snowflakes have six equal length petals and usually with a green spot on the end of each petal. Uh, the snowdrops have six petals, but three are short and, and in the centre, and then the three large ones are on the outside side and it's nearly always the central petals that have spots not the outside ones Uh, and the outer petals sit out almost like helicopter propellers when it's fully open Mm. and they're the daintiest little things and they're not particularly hard to grow a lot of people think that the true snowdrops are only for the really cold climates Um, I would certainly suggest that the one that's known as the English snowdrop uh, Galanthus nivalis does seem to need a winter chill to flower quite well. Okay. Uh, but some of the Mediterranean ones and some of the hybrid ones don't need a particularly cold winter to um, to set flower buds. Uh, so I'd be certainly looking out for some of those. And the one I brought along this morning is a little hybrid one called Magnet. And it's a very good multiplier, has good-sized flowers on a nice short little plant. And a clump of those sitting in a, in a rock garden or underneath your birch tree uh, would look stunning. And they multiply reasonably well. But like a lot of these things, if you start with one, next year you're likely to have two. But if you start with three, you're going to end up with six. So it's quite a good idea to buy more than one. Exactly. uh, To get a little bit of an effect happening as quickly as possible. Uh, I think people who go out and buy one of everything, you end up with a bit of a confetti garden. (laughs) Whereas if you can buy, I'd rather spend my money on getting a good colony of one and then next year go and get a good colony of something else. Yes, exactly. uh, Instead of having one of everything in the same year. Yep. Um, And of course, all those things snowball. The The more bulbs you've got, the more they multiply. So in time, you end up with wonderful big clumps and... The smaller the bulb is, the more of a clump you need. Oh, of course. You know, otherwise there's no it's, real impact. No, exactly. So, so you do need some quantity of some of these little things to make them sort of work well. Uh, and finally, the other bulb I brought along, or not truly a bulb, of course, a, um, uh, a tuber, 
uh, is one of the little wild cyclamen or cyclamen, depending on what school you went to. And they're another group of very, very useful plants because they self-seed, so you end up with colonies of them. And there's autumnal flowering ones, there's winter flowering ones, there are spring flowering ones, and there's even one that has a sort of a sporadic flowering right through the summer. So you could quite literally have them in flower pretty well all year round. Mm. And this is the little winter one, cyclamen coom, and it has little round chubby petals that are sort of fluted. Um, and it comes in pure white through shades of pink to deep, deep sort of carmony colours. So it has quite a range of colours. The leaves are pretty kidney-shaped or heart-shaped, um, and they vary from straight green through all sorts of different marblings. The one I brought along this morning is mainly silver-leafed, and it's got sort of a, a green Christmas tree shape in the centre of the leaf, which is, I think, quite a pleasing I variegation. I think it's beautiful, and it, it's, it's, it's got a real sheen to it, yeah, hasn't it? A yeah, really lo- silvery yeah. sheen. Yeah, it's a lovely thing, and in fact, beautiful. if you start growing cyclamen in any sort of serious way, you'll immediately realise that you get the pink one or the white one. There's not really much choice in colours, you know, there's various pinks, but nonetheless, they're pink or white. Uh, but what really starts to intrigue uh, after the, the initial flowers are the leaves. Yes. I mean, each species has, well, almost invariably, a wide range of leaf shapes, colours, forms. Uh, so you can actually be picking up the next one you haven't got that's got a different leaf patterning mm. to the previous one. Mm. I'm still finding forms of Cyclamen hedrofolium, the little autumn one, that are quite different to anything else I've had before. And so I'm adding to my collection of those, getting as many different silvery ones and, and different leaf patterned ones as I can. And in a sense, the flowers are almost secondary, even though they're the main show, I guess, in a sense. Uh, so the Cyclamen can keep you really busy. I mean, there's only about 28 species, I think, that have been discovered. So it's not a huge genus. Okay. But the diversity within the species is so vast that you will never have a complete collection of what you could say the cyclamen genus can offer. Yes. So, And they're great in – most of them grow really well in the sort of filtered semi-shade of deciduous shrubs and trees. So you can whack them in under your rose bushes. You can have them under your liquid amber. Some of them will grow perfectly well even under your cypresses and pines. And there's not a lot that will grow there's in those. There's not a lot, no. No, no. It's very difficult to grow some things in those sort of conditions, whereas some of these little cyclamen will, in fact, grow in those sort of mm. spots. So so they can be terribly useful plants in all sorts of difficult little corners where you ordinarily wouldn't expect to get much of a show. Exactly. Uh, so I, th- I think they're – well, uh, to paraphrase a famous gardener who once said, uh, uh, no matter how small your garden is, you should have three acres of woodland, uh, I think you should have three acres of cyclamen in your garden <laughs> I think they are just wonderful little plants. You just can't overdo them. No, uh, exactly. They're uh, and, beautiful. You know, I can't think of another genus of small plants that gives you such diversity uh, and such longevity of use mm. in the garden because you quite literally can have them all year round. Yes. I mean, I don't think – the only other genus I can think of that even comes within cooey of them and that will frighten the pants off some people are the oxalis because there's summer-growing flowering ones and there's winter-growing flowering ones, so you can quite literally have them out all year round, uh, and there is a huge diversity in leaf shape, form, colour, texture. Oh, yeah. So oxalis would be one of the few genera of small plants like that that I can think of that would compete with the, the cyclamen, and they have a wider range of colour. There you go. Mm. So, yeah, I think they're wonderful little plants. So now would be a good time to be going out and looking for little potted bulbs. If Fantastic. You're, you know, looking for something new for the garden. Yep. Um, I'll just give out the number again, Stephen. Oh, yes, we should have for, some. For uh, people who are listening there, we are running uh, our normal time slot, right, running right through until 9.15 this morning. So if you'd like to jump on board and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. 
419 Now, I've Next got a one. couple of other things. All right, well, we might talk about this big plant I bought in this Let's morning. Do. Yeah. Um, as people are aware, uh, I've not long come back from overseas, and that's why I haven't been on air all that much lately. Uh, and Craig and I went for a walk in the Canary Islands, uh, which is a part of the world I'd never been to before, and which has a really remarkable flora. Uh, there's lots and lots of endemic plants that come from the Canary Islands. Many of our lovely garden echiums come from there. There's a huge range of echiums that grow all over the Canary Islands. Uh, and the plant I bought in this morning is not an echium, but it is a Canary Island endemic plant in the Campanula family. And it goes under the name of, Carp- uh, of uh, Canarina, which means Canary Islands, Canariensis, which means Canary Islands. So it's Canarina Canariensis from the Canary Islands, funnily enough. And it's a herbaceous perennial scrambler. Uh, so it'll waft over other plants. So you plant it, say, under a shrub or a small tree. Actually, it'd be rather good in a rose garden at this time of the year when roses in general are uh, half Looking very and, woody. And, yeah, and, yeah, and if you had a canarina growing under them that could sort of flop up through your rose bushes, hopefully after you finish pruning them. Um, and it has quite attractive foliage, a sort of a spearhead-shaped leaf. Uh, and in the winter months, it comes out with these lovely sort of orangey, Companula-like flowers, trumpet flowers, with uh, with dark veining generally in them, uh, and it is the most beautiful thing for winter. It is slightly frost tender, so it's probably not a good plant for really frosty areas. I struggle with it a bit up at Macedon. I have to keep it in the shade house out of the frost as much as possible. But around suburban Melbourne, it's perfectly hardy, um, and it dies down in the summer. So it'll come up and do its thing during the winter, and then it dies back in the summer to a sort of a dahlia-like tuber affair under the ground. And supposedly, and I haven't had an opportunity to do this yet, but supposedly it has edible berries on it or edible fruit. So it's also edible. Uh, I'm assuming not in such quantities that one could live off it, but it's one of those perhaps uh, uh, browsing plants that you might have in the garden where you have one or two and just try them out. Uh, I haven't yet had any set seeds, so I haven't had an opportunity to try the fruit, but one day I will. Uh, So Canarina canariensis is a really interesting plant from an interesting flora in a very offbeat and interesting part of the world. Um, And island floras are like that. They tend to be... Uh, really unique and different. I mean, I'm off to Madagascar again in October. Still got room on the board as far as I know. So if a couple want to come along, we'd love to have two more. Um, but it has its its huge group of endemic plants that come only from there. The Canaries is fascinating because it's a, a cluster of tiny islands and there's such a concentration of, uh, of endemic plants on them because they're sort of isolated out in the Atlantic Ocean um, that it's a bit of a, a culture shock when you're wandering around the Canaries to see all these bizarre plants from all, uh, all different plant families but completely different uh, genera in general from what you're used to in the garden. Yep. So, so, yeah, so I, I found it a fascinating place to wander and I was often coming across something and I'm going, my God, I didn't know that came from here. Um, and so, yes, exciting place to visit. So Canarina canariensis. Uh, it's uh, there's a good plant of it or a good colony of plants of it growing in the botanic gardens uh, uh, in Melbourne. If you go to the Temple of the Winds and walk down the path that goes down to the craft cottage, it's growing through some shrubs. I think it's actually growing over the top of a horizontal acacia, actually, one of those cootamundra ones, the weeping mm-hmm. sort of ones. I think that's what's down the end of that path. Anyhow, there's a big sprawly shrub down there of some sort and the canarina is growing up and over it with its orange bells hanging through it and it's a really intriguing plant. Fantastic. Yeah, so well worth it. 
Absolutely. Let's go to our first caller. We have Pamela, who's out in Melton. Good morning. Oh, hello. Um, I've got just... A, it's probably quite an easy question, but I bought a couple of um, standard roses, and they're bagged up. Um, yeah. And I've just got them in my porch out of the frost, um, and they're starting to have really tiny shoots, like about 6 mil or something like that. And I don't know if I should plant them out or if it's too cold. No, no, get them out. Roses, oh, right. roses are not at all worried by the cold. Thank uh, you so, much. so I would plant them now. In fact, if you're buying bagged up trees of any sort, I wouldn't keep them in the bags terribly long if no. you can avoid it. Uh, I mean, certainly you must check and make sure that the, the packing material inside the bag is, in fact, slightly moist. Um, and you do need to make sure that when you plant anything like that out in the ground, you've got bare roots waving around, so don't take them out of the bag and lay them on the ground for half an hour. Get them straight into the hole and make sure you get really good contact uh, of soil with roots. So make sure you water them down in well. And with a standard rose, obviously, you need to put a really good strong stake in as you plant so that you don't jam it down through the roots uh, because they are quite top-heavy when they're young and they can easily snap in the winds and things if you don't have them well staked. Well, thank you so much for that because this is my first time with standard roses, but I could only get Papa Milan, which is my favourite variety, in a standard this yeah. time. Yeah, well, just make sure they're well staked and obviously plant them back into a bed further than you would with a bush rose so that they become a sort of a taller feature in the bed. Uh, and do put a good, strong, permanent stake with them because standard roses more or less need to be kept staked most of their lives. So something that's not going to rot off and, and fall over within the first year or two. Yes, I thank you. I really appreciate this. I think that the bag is moist because they're starting to have little green shoots. Yeah, which is a good sign. It means that their roots are in good good condition. So, But I would get them out as soon as possible, uh, and today would be a perfect day to go out and do some planting, I think. And when you water them in, I'd also put a little bit of seaweed solution yeah, into the water. Yeah, one of the seaweed oh. solutions is, in fact, what I normally do with bare-rooted things, I have a bucket of water, I take them dunk out of it. their bag, I dunk them in the water, and I normally have that sort of topped up with a little bit of seaweed solution in the water uh, and then they can sit in the water for an hour or two or even overnight it doesn't really matter and then I use that water to water them in Mm. because it's got the seaweed in it uh, and that will help settle them in nicely. That will also encourage new root growth. Yeah. Thank you so much. Are standards more fragile than the, the normal No, they're, they're no harder to grow than the normal roses. It's just the fact that they're up on a stick. They're more prone to wind damage and things, uh, and they can become top-heavy if the understock doesn't thicken up well. So you can have a rather skinny, wobbly understock, and that's why you need to stake them well. Thank you. That's been most informative. Thank you so much. Okay, good luck with that. Bye. Yes, now is the time to be getting all those bare-rooted trees into the ground if you can. Uh, Most nurseries have got them available at this time of the year, whether it be fruit trees or ornamental trees or or whatever. Um, And they're normally just a little bit cheaper than buying potted plants. Mm. Um, So if economy is is part of your thing. But you do have to be extra careful about planting them because you need to get good contact with the roots. In fact, I normally put them in the hole, uh, I try and make a little bit of a mound in the bottom of the hole so that, I've the got, roots across. Yeah, so that the roots are so across and down slightly yes. at the tips so that they're in the proper sort of natural form that they should be in. Uh, then I put a little bit of soil over the roots. I tend to fill the hole with water and sort of puddle that soil down to make sure that there's no air pockets in underneath the crown particularly. Um, and then I fill up the hole and, and in the meantime I generally stake them if they need staking so I can push it into the ground between the roots instead of 
breaking going roots. through them. Yes, that's right. Because it's Murphy's Law. If you try and whack a stake oh, in after, you'll go straight through a root. Of course you will. Um, and so I try and stake them first, get them settled in their hole, and then I fill it, and then I water them in again well afterwards. And, yes, the seaweed is really important. Um, and then I just firm it gently with my foot once the water is has sort of drained away a bit because mm. otherwise you just make a sort of a mud pie out of the That's whole right. thing. That's uh, right. And that way you get good contact with the soil. Uh, if people lose bare-rooted trees, it's nearly always the fact that they haven't really got that proper contact uh, mm. with the soil and they've left air pockets around mm. the roots, which, of course, stay dry. Mm. But if you've, if you've ordered a bare-rooted anything, um, do then – Use that time before it arrives to prepare the bed well, ready, because you really can't have them arrive and and just leave them for days. You really need to take them out of their bag, as you said, uh, soak them even overnight um, in a seaweed solution in a bucket. But you do need to get them in the ground. Oh, yeah. Don't leave them sitting out because if those roots dry out, then Mm. they're gone. And that's the other thing. If you're buying bare-rooted trees, you're probably better to buy them bagged um, unless your nurseryman is very careful with them because what often happens is if they have them in a sawdust pit, which is the way you used to buy your bare-rooted trees, I don't know that so many nurseries are doing that now, but somebody would pull a tree out and it would let the air into the roots of the one next to it. Yes. So unless it's covered in properly, you can have actually drying roots on a tree that hasn't even been sold yet. And so, of course, when that poor unsuspecting customer comes along and actually buys that one, Mm. it may in fact not be in good condition already. So, you know, its roots may have dried out and and it may be a really bad buy. Mm. So I guess at least if you're buying a pot-grown plant, uh, its roots haven't ever been dried out, so you know you're getting a live plant. But you can, in fact, buy a dead one uh, when you're buying bare-rooted trees if you're not careful. Yes. And it's really hard to to tell. I mean, I get bare-rooted trees every year from my growers and Sometimes they arrive and their roots are already sort of been waving around in the wind in the back of a truck and what have you. Um, and uh, I put a lot of effort into making sure that I rehydrate those roots and make sure that they're fine. Uh, but even I can't be dead sure that uh, one of them isn't already too dry. Exactly. And so it can be a bit of a a bit of a lottery mm. uh, buying bare-rooted trees if they haven't been really carefully cared for. Mm. So, uh, yeah, some of my growers are really good and they bag them up and they have um, water granules in the bags and, and, and shredded newspaper and all a sorts of things. A good grower will do the proper thing. Yeah, but sometimes yeah. a truck will arrive and there it is. You open up the back of the truck and here's and all these bare oh, roots. No. Uh, and they look semi-dried and you think, oh, God, here Personally, we go. Personally, I'd send the truck back. Well, anyway. I'd be tempted to, but uh, uh, you sort of get an intuitive sense of whether it's gone too far or not sometimes yep. too. So when you've been working with them long enough, I can sort of look at them and go, all right, well, they've only just been out of the ground for a few hours, they're probably fine. But if they've been waving around in a truck since being loaded the day before yesterday oh, yeah, or something, oh, you just can't believe that people would think that a plant's going to come through that well. Yes. So, yeah, so it is it's a real issue. But anyhow, it is the time to be getting out there and dealing with those trees. Absolutely. Um, and, and it is a good time to be out planting trees now. So, yeah, I'd be... Um, Getting stuck in. I mean, there's lots and lots of interesting things you can be planting now. And I'd also be going out around the nurseries too and looking at, I mean, I've mentioned the dwarf bulbs that are starting to flower now, but there's quite a number of shrubs and trees that flower through the winter as well. And they're really precious in the garden. And if you don't go out to the nurseries and see what's there uh, at this time of the year, you're not actually going to have a garden that reflects every season. That's right. So it's I, I can't believe how many people rush out to the nurseries when the first warm weather comes on in the spring and they buy everything that's in flower then. Uh, and then their whole garden comes to life in spring, but 
the rest of the yeah. time it's very boring. Yeah. In fact, I tend to say to people, uh, particularly in our area where we do spring very well and we also do autumn pretty well yes. uh, with colour, that to go out of your way to make sure you've got plants that are performing in the summer and the winter because they're the two seasons that sometimes get missed out at Macedon. Um, and so, you know, go out and see what's in flower in the summer. Go out and see what's in flower in the winter. Mm, absolutely. Um, and make sure you buy some of those. Yep, mm. definitely. Yeah. Okay, that number, if you'd like to join us again this morning, 94190155. We've got Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants in the studio. We'd love to hear from you, 94190155. Yes, wake up, everybody. All right, I've only got one left, so people better start ringing in. (laughs) Otherwise, we'll just have to prattle for the rest of the morning. Oh, we Uh, can do that. Well, probably can, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, This one's a novelty plant that I rather love. It's, it's It's just a hoot. It's commonly called a corkscrew rush. Um, it's botanically known as a, as a juncus, juncus effusus spiralis, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but the corkscrew rush has some sort of um, uh, disbalance in its in its genetics because the normal form of it just has straight rushy leaves, and this one has arisen in cultivation somewhere or been found as a, a wildling somewhere, and somebody's gone, oh, there's a novel idea, uh, and has dug it up, and now you just grow it by divisions, and um, and you can. Divide it up fairly regularly if you wish to. Uh, and its leaves can grow to about oh, 30 centimetres or so long. And every leaf spirals like a corkscrew, but every leaf spirals at a different intensity. Yes. So some of them are quite tightly or quite openly spiraled. So they're just the leaf just curls as it goes along. Others have got big sort of circular effects in the leaves. So every leaf is different and they go out at different angles. So the whole plant looks like it's had a really bad perm. <laughs> Basically, um, it's yeah, it's just a fun novelty plant. Children find it really impressive, especially children of all ages. Um, uh, it's a bog plant in its natural habitat. It grows in the mud on the sides of streams and bogs and things, at least in its normal leaf form. And this curly leaf form is exactly the same in its requirements. So it would be a very good plant on the margins of a stream or a, uh, a dam or something if you were lucky enough to have such things in your garden. Uh, or conversely, it could be grown in a nice shallow ornamental pot sitting in a permanent source of water. Mm-hmm. And it would look fantastic sitting up on the barbecue table or something like that as just a conversation piece. Exactly. And it likes a sunny aspect. It doesn't do terribly well in heavy shade. Um, and, yes, the roots – it's its only real cultural requirement is to have its roots in permanent moisture. Mm. So it's quite simple just to sit it in a saucer of water um, and uh, just give it a little bit of Osmocote every so often or one of those slow-release fertilisers. That's about all it will need. Uh, and just clean out dead leaves every so often to keep the plant looking neat and tidy uh, and probably once every two or three years break it up and share it with all your friends. So, uh, and I'm sure you'll get some strange looks from people when you give them one of these because it is, it is an odd plant. It's not classically beautiful, but it's, it's just intriguing and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a laugh. I'm, I'm wondering, Stephen, if you put it in a, a big bowl, yeah. say as a centrepiece on, on an outdoor table or something, is there another low-growing bog plant that flowers that you could combine it with because it looks like what any florist would use as, oh, yeah. as the backdrop of, a, of an arrangement. Yeah, oh, well, you could. In fact, there are a few little sort of, and I'm not aware of all the names of them, but there's some little tiny creeping bog plants that you can plant in mud. Uh, and I've, Some of the water garden people have them in there. Uh, I wish I remember the name of them, but they have very attractive little lavender flowers and they sit virtually flat to the ground and they'd actually... Tr- 
droop over the edge of the pot. See, that so, would look fantastic. Yeah, so you could have a sort of a combined planting with this and some other moisture-loving A little things. miniature bog garden, which yeah. would be gorgeous. Yeah, some of the little tiny marsh marigolds might work. Um, there's actually a whole range of small-growing bog plants that you could, in fact, use. Um, and um, some of them are sort of like little mossy-type things that could grow along underneath mm. them. So, yeah, so you could have a lot of fun. Uh, and, in fact, it could be a smaller component in a, in a pot with some even larger plants, um, things like the uh, perennial bog lobelias, the cardinal lobelia that has these straight upright stems with beetroot red leaves and scarlet flowers Would on look the top. gorgeous. And then you could have this sort of swirling around the feet fantastic. of it. So you could have a lot of fun with it as a combination plant as well. Yes. You're right. It would make a really good yeah. combined plant in a pot. So that's the corkscrew rush, um, which is juncus, J-U-N-C-U-S, uh, effusus, which is E double F U S U S, spiralis, so S P I R A L I S, I think. Um, anyhow, that'll get you close enough if you do some googling, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it's certainly worth looking up because it is a really bizarre and interesting plant, and it would be a great gift for a small child. Because, oh, it would be. Yeah, kids love insectivorous plants weird succulents and cacti uh, and things like this. Mm. You know, it's not about the pretty flowers necessarily. No, it's the weird and wonderful. Yeah, they love it. And so yeah. I think the, the spiral rush fits that bill superbly. Absolutely. So, uh, in fact, I must put it up on my website at some stage. It's one of those offbeat plants that I probably mm. probably should put up there. You should. And actually, I don't know whether people have been checking out my website, something I haven't talked about for ages. But I try and go in about, well, the plan is to go in once a week or once a fortnight and blog a plant. Don't always do that, but sometimes I'll do one or two in a week. Uh, so I guess I'm sort of keeping up. There's well over 200 plants on my website now with images, uh, a bit of a description of them, telling you where they come from, how to use them, uh, what sort of prices I charge for them, obviously, seeing as it's a commercial website. Uh, and... Um, you can and it's and all of the plants are categorised, so you could go in and say you wanted winter interest, so you could that will pull up the winter interest plants for you, or uh, bulbs, or or climbers, or whatever. Um, so you can sort of get categories that you can sort of pull up plants on, and I think it's becoming quite a useful reference tool. Mm. So uh, if people if you just Google Stephen Ryan or Google Dixonia rare plants, you'll very easily find the website, uh, which I think is actually stephenryan.com.au. AU um, and um, yeah and I think the website's quite good it also has my tours on there so uh, it's got the Madagascan tour still on the website and it's also got next year's southern France tour on the website so if people want to because it's not that far away to May now no it's not you know so if you're thinking of going you know going to do a garden tour somewhere uh, you probably need to start thinking about now absolutely um, so I'm doing the south of France tour for the first time next year so I'm looking forward to that it should be great fun um, so we'll be going to Aix-en-Provence and all those sort of wonderful places all down around the south of France and into the into the foothills to look at wildflowers and all that sort of thing. So it should be really, really good. So so that's up on the website as well. So why not, in fact, go in and have a little look and make all my hard work worthwhile? Definitely. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I'll put the junk us up on the website. I'll need to take a photo of it at some stage and I'll pop it up on the website at some stage for people to have a look at. Great. So, Excellent. There you okay, go. let's go to our next caller. We have Ruth out in Bentley East. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, both of you. Um, I would like to ask a question and then add another plant into the discussion sure. of variegated plants. Yep, okay, certainly. go ahead. 
Um, I just want to know for a question. Um, I have started growing the little bedding cyclamens. Yeah. But um, I want to know, because over the years people give you the store-bought larger cyclamen, is it possible to keep them going successfully in the garden? It can be. If you put them in a spot where they get a really good dry summer dormancy um, and somewhere that's reasonably shady, um, so under a tree or shrub, uh, and somewhere that drains reasonably well so that the tubers are never really wet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of people have quite good success with them. I can't grow them outdoors up where I am because they're too cold sensitive, so uh, the frost tends to knock them about. Uh, and I have to say I don't have the same interest in those ones because – there's something oh, sort of coarse yeah. about them when you compare them to showy. the lovely little wildlings. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've never really been particularly enamoured with the the big ones. And I might add it's quite funny because the big ones aren't hybrids. They're actually selected forms that they've selected over the years that have got bigger and bigger and bigger from Cyclamen persicum, uh, the Persian Cyclamen. And you'll note that they're now selling dwarf versions of it. Uh, but what they've done is instead of just selling the wild forms, they've bred the big ones back down small again. So yep. they've spent a century and a half building <laughs> up great big ones to now turn around and breed them back down again to smaller size plants. Um, Having done that, they have, in fact, have, have a wider range of colour that you could get in the wild ones because the colour variation has changed over the centuries. Uh, but they haven't bred hardiness into them. So even those smaller ones of the, oh. of the big pot cyclamen <laughs> aren't really that tough. And I've tried oh, them out okay. in the garden at home and I can't keep them going more than a year or two. And yet the wild version, Cyclamen persicum in its wild form, uh, I've got a few growing in the garden and they do get a little knocked about by the cold weather, but they come, come, keep coming back every year uh, and they're self-seeding as well and they're perfumed. Uh, and there's something elegant about the wild form of it that they've lost in the hybrids, even in the dwarf ones. Well, I'll try because I, I hate it when people give you a present and you sort of end up chucking it away. I'll give Think it of a it time. as a bunch of flowers, perhaps. <laughs> I, yes, I know, I know that theory, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah, look, they, they can be grown. If you've got the right sort of environment in your garden, you can actually have them go on for year after year in the ground. Okay. Then the other plant that I was thinking of for variegation is a form of Trachylospermum. Yeah, the variegated Trachylospermums can be quite useful. Uh, That's the star Mm. jasmine for those out there that aren't familiar with the botanical name of Trachylospermum. And there are a couple of variegated forms out there, but the straight white-edged variegated form of Trachylospermum jasminoides is a charming climbing plant because it brings a bit of light and colour into the shade. And if you're lucky enough to be in a cold area like I am, the variegation gets pink tones in it in the winter with the cold, which yes, is particularly it's pretty. Just beautiful. Yeah, it's yes, a lovely plant. Just lovely. Yes, you're, you're I've quite got right. It right through the garden, and um, I. But they're very hard to get, and I have tried um, uh, and sort of successfully rooting them and taking cuttings from it, but. They don't seem to do it very easily. No, it's not the world's easiest plant to strike, funnily enough, for something that's as hardy as it is. Um, mm. So they can be a little hard to propagate. And you're right, you don't see them out in the, in the trade very often, the variegated ones. And no. I've never – well, 
I guess it may be that sort of hangover of uh, of uh, variegations not being tasteful or something that you tend to get amongst some uh, fashionista gardeners. Oh, uh, well. But uh, I think that variegations like that make great value when you're looking for something to hide a shady <laughs> fence or something like that to bring a bit of light and colour in. And, of course, yes. they still get white-scented flowers on them, so uh, they're nice in bloom as well. That's right. Mm. Okay, well, thank you. It's always such an interesting program. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ruth. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we're going to Jill in Bentley. I'm in Malvern. Sorry, Jill. Go ahead. Hi, Pam. This is Jill from the Herb Society. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jill. How are you? I'm fine. Yes, I've got over 120 herbs in my garden now because (laughs) I go and do talks to garden clubs. And then when I went to Knox, and then to Mulgrave, the same people go to the same one. So I was doing the talk was on unusual herbs, so I just took different unusual herbs. Yeah, well, there you go. That can work. That's uh, good, isn't it? Yeah. Stephen, I wanted to ask you, I have had and have lost a pink and white striped aquilegia, and mm. I wondered if it has a specific botanic name that I could ask a nursery to look for it? Probably not. Uh, a lot of the aquilegias are just seedling strains and right. so they're, they're not sort of specific named cultivars because most aquilegias are, are seed grown mm. and some forms, if they're well isolated, come fairly true to seed and yeah. so therefore they sometimes sell them as a known sort of seedling strain so they might put a name on it. Um, but generally speaking, most of the aquilegias you see out in the trade are just seedlings. And uh-huh. so there's, there's very little likelihood of you being able to ask for a specific one and getting that pink and white. Well, I'll go to the same good. nursery in spring and see if I can spring it again. Yeah, well, you never know your luck. And if you can get an aquilegia like that that you have a particular fondness for, just try and keep it as isolated as possible in your garden because the seedlings from it, if it's reasonably well isolated, could come fairly true to seed. But if Yeah, you... my sister's been... Adores aquilegias and it has heaps of them. Yeah. But she's finding that the single ones now um, all become double. Yeah, well, because they're yeah. Very, yeah, they're cross pollinating and, yeah. and, and you will yeah. end up with uh, either a huge mixture of stuff or slowly over a period of time it will become a sort of a homogenous strain that grows in your particular garden because the same genes keep getting thrown back on each other all the time. Yeah. And so you do tend to end up with a particular sort of strain. And in my my garden, I planted out years ago a gold-leafed aquilegia, um, mm. and I pull out anything that comes up that's not gold-leafed, um, and now I basically very rarely get a green aquilegia in the garden. All of my aquilegias come up with gold leaves. Now, the flower mm. colour varies a bit. Uh, mm. I haven't got to the effort of trying to isolate a particular colour strain as well, uh, but nearly all my aquilegias come up gold-leafed, which is really quite fun. Uh, unfortunately, some of them come up gold-leafed with pink flowers. Flowers, which I'm not actually as fond <laughs> no. of. Uh, no, it's just, it's a bit like having a salmon brick house with pink roses. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't work. I always work. think you need the yellow and apricot roses with that sort of house and the pink and red roses with a red brick or grey house. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, you do need to, although sometimes you can take your colour coordinating a tad far. I can remember a lady friend of mine who I won't mention the name of who used to take classes in gardening and she was very into colour coordinating. And I remember being at her place one day when she was telling her students how well the stamens of a certain plant were picked up by the mortar in her brickwork. (laughs) And I thought that was taking things just a tiny bit too far. 
well, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you like that particular rose, yeah. you know, something like, um, I can't remember its name. One one of the roses has pink stamen, a uh, red burgundy stamens, and the other has yellow. Yes, yeah. yeah and they're the, the same rose, actually. Well, she might have to change her... Uh, stuck her in her house. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just I just think it was taking things beyond the pale because I just couldn't see how that would be an obvious thing to anybody but her. Um, yeah. Nobody think, would notice the stain. I think she's gone from enthusiast to... Um, Mm. Yeah, complete purist, I think. <laughs> a bit uh, too purist. Yeah, but, and look, that's part of the fun of gardening, of course. I'm not poo-pooing those things. If people want to take things to the nth degree within their garden, I well, think we that's need, great. We need, we need the wacky person to really get into it, don't we? Yeah, well, of course, that's how you end up with collectors who have 555 different dahlia varieties well, or, uh, well, or um, what have you. I'm on the way to being uh, wacky. Yes, you're doing it with <laughs> herbs, though, Jill, which is actually a little more generalist. It is. You know, yeah. I mean, if you were only collecting cultivars of mint, I'd start to worry about you. Now, I have a suggestion for yours, corkscrew yeah. and um, Lobelia cardinalis yeah. uh, container, and that is some nardu. Yes, you could, in yes, fact. Could. Nardu would look absolutely gorgeous yeah. between the two. Yes, yes. with that lovely sort of clover Because it's on the way to leaf. wacky, yeah. you know, yeah. with its cute little four leaves at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. Quite agree. And it sort of blends between the two colours, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, well done, Jill. I like that combination. And uh, I, I bought it at the op shop, of course. That's where I buy most things because uh, that's environmentally responsible. Um, and, of course, it hasn't got Chinese air miles on it lately. Anyway, I bought this burgundy tub without a hole in it, mm. and that's where my Nardu lives in its pot. Fantastic. What a good idea. And it's just... It's just perfect for it because the bronze look comes through, you know, um, more strongly than the, the reddish look. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's nice to be able to put that little bit of finesse into something that you do. Yeah. And, um, well, I don't know. The other, the other thing that I'm really excited about is my little lime, native lime, has had one flower. <laughs> so we're not going to make marmalade for a while, but anyhow, that's great, isn't it? Because they're charming little plants. And, oh, they're great. Yeah, and uh, they'll only get better. Now, I've grew a kangaroo apple to the west of it mm-hmm. because what was told to me that told when I bought it that it needed open space and it grows in the red earth in the centre of Australia. But I then read that it needs... Um, dappled shade mm-hmm. in, in the hottest, hottest western time. So now, um, now I think I have to cut my kangaroo apple out and put that somewhere else because it's too shady. Yeah, it, w- it could get too shady for the for the lime. Um, and the kangaroo apple is an incredibly fast growing plant. So it, and it, mine's got those mm-hmm. awful corkscrew sort of leaves when you know when the new leaves come oh yeah it's really ugly yeah well, so it's... i don't mind composting something that looks ugly and i'm remembering that comment by um the gentleman from i know if i know his name as well as clive blazy yeah there's no excuse for ugliness was in one of his magazines yeah so... and in a sense he's he's dead right the problem is though of course if you end up in an ugly house you've got a real problem <laughs> Oh no, no! You just have to—you just have to grow so many trees that you cover the house. Yeah, well, that sort of makes me laugh. Though I, I often get people who actually come into the nursery and they say, oh, "I need something to cover my ugly shed." And you say, "Well, why have you got an ugly shed? Why not build an attractive shed 
and then you don't have to completely hide it. Uh, but anyhow, uh, different strokes for different folks. Oh, well, there's roses and there's hardened birds, yeah? Yeah. They'll be right. Yeah, certainly will, Jill. Okay, okay. then, Jill. Thanks, Pam. Okay, bye. Bye now. Right, next up we're going to Anne, who's out in Whittlesea. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning. Um, I'm just ringing because I'm wondering which um, to recommend which lemon tree for my daughter who lives in Whittlesea too. Yeah. And is um, her, her lemon tree uh, cactus because of the citrus wasp, really? And um, I, I don't. I know we can't get a lemon tree that won't. Yeah, that you can't get a lemon tree that won't get that if it's in your area, unfortunately. No. Oh, it's a pain in the bum. Anyway, um, I just wonder which one would be best or just a plant in, in a... Yeah, well, look, I don't think it matters terribly much. In the areas where you get heavy frosts, a lot of people recommend the Maya lemon, uh, which is a more cold-hardy, but I'm not so fond of the Maya because it's a sweeter lemon. And, and, I mean, if I want a lemon, I want something that tastes of lemon, really. You want the acidity. Yeah, you need the acidity. So you could plant a Maya. It's also quite useful in the sense that it's not a particularly big-growing lemon, so it makes a a small, bushy tree, and it fruits very heavily. Uh, It's not thorny. Uh, It has lots of advantages, but it's not a true lemon from my perspective. Perspective. So um, it's probably not my top of the list. And you can uh, get it on uh, dwarfing stock. Yeah, so you can even get a smaller one. Mm. Yeah. So, But I would prefer just to go for a classic Lisbon or Eureka lemon. Um, uh, well, that, I've, got, I've got a Lisbon. They're yeah. wonderful. Yeah, and yeah. I think they're great lemons. I mean, I've got a Lisbon in the garden at home. It's uh, in a cold area. It's yeah. surviving perfectly well. Uh, it fruits nice and heavily. Uh, and um, if it's not in fruit, my Tahitian lime is. So I've always got some nice sort of tangy, citrusy fruit to, to use in a gin and tonic or to squeeze over fish. So, um, so yeah, so I, I don't think it matters terribly much. I don't believe there's much difference in the hardiness between a Eureka and a Lisbon. Uh, one's more prickly than the other, if that's any yes. difference. But uh, really, at the end of the day, I mean... You don't have to go in and, and deal with your lemon tree all that often. So if it's got an odd thorn on it, if you're aware of it, you're just yep. a little careful. And so that's what I would plant, a Lisbon or Eureka. All right. Thank you very much for that. It's a pleasure. Thank you very okay, much for bye. your very interesting oh, um, good. session too. Great. Thanks. Bye. bye. Right, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're on air every Sunday morning from 7.30 till 9.15. If you'd like to join us this morning... Do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. We do have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants in this morning. So uh, if you'd like to have a chat to him, please give us a call, 94190155. Stephen, something I noticed, I was reading um, during this week, um, I get a um, an e-news uh, bulletin out from uh, the nursery and garden industry oh, in yes, Victoria yeah. every week. And uh, this week, um, something really pricked my interest. They've um, reproduced an article that was originally published in uh, New Scientist magazine, 22nd of July this year, so yeah. it's only very recent, um, and it's, I'm going to read a little bit of it because I, I think it's, it's really fascinating. And this is um, it's, it's in, uh, talking about in the UK, mm-hmm. plants discovered in ghost ponds 
are being revived after lurking underground as dormant seeds for up to 150 years. Goodness. Now, these so-called ghost ponds are formed when agricultural land expansion means that existing ponds are filled in and literally buried alive, hence the name ghost ponds. So to expand a field, farmers commonly remove hedgerows, then use the uprooted plants and soil to fill up the ponds. Um, so small ponds were not drained but were filled in while they were still wet. Uh, and we think that the, the scientists think that that is likely to have contributed to the survival of the seeds buried within the historic pond sediments. Goodness. Um, so these buried ponds can often be seen as a ghostly mark on the landscape, a damp depression, change in colour soil, uh, a patch uh, uh, of poor crop cover or where the ground never quite dries out. Um, they, uh, these scientists also suspect that ghost was the right word as it hints at some form of life still hanging on and this is exactly what they have. So the team estimates that um, there are around 600,000 uh, ghost ponds buried Goodness. across the English agricultural landscape. That's a huge number. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, Given the range of different seed types that they've found capable of germination after 150-plus years, it could be reasonable to expect that ghost ponds could provide suitable reservoirs of rare or even extinct species. Um, What's more, ghost ponds could reveal dormant animal species. The team found resting eggs from two crustacean species, although they haven't been yet assessed for their viability. Goodness gracious me, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It's a bit sad, though, when you consider how much habitat has been uh, destroyed under agricultural land. Yes, exactly. Uh, in a place, you know, the size of England to lose 60,000 ponds. I mean, you know, all the other wildlife that obviously doesn't survive a pond being filled in, like the fish and other sundry things, they'd all be gone. Yep. Um, and all the amphibians and things, the newts, the salamanders, the frogs, the uh, the whole range of species that have lost their habitats. It's very sad. I wonder if they could dig them out again and, and rebalance the environment if there's that, all that seed under there. Uh, at least the plant species would come back fairly quickly, potentially, if they opened up the ponds again. Well, they are. In, 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 as part of their, their exploration of these ghost ponds, they are obviously getting permission from the farmers, yeah. but they are actually excavating them yeah. to see what seeds and everything are hidden under there. And so they are recreating oh, some of these ponds. But uh, the amazing part is then to, to get these seeds that they're finding germ- mm. re-germinating. Yeah. It does go, go to show that some plants have a long-term potential. Uh, other plants, I mean, if you don't get the seed in this year, they're no good for next year. Um, but, yeah, some plants can survive in a seed form for a long, long time. And you hear all sorts of stories about, you know, seeds being germinated from the pharaoh's tombs and stuff. That's right. That's uh, exactly right. And uh, if that's the case, if that really has happened, uh, I know of a case that I read about years ago, and I'll probably get it slightly wrong, but there was some magnolia seed found and it may have been in a tomb. I can't remember where it was found. Uh, but it was carbon dated to being quite some thousands of years old. Um, and it germinated. They got it to grow. Okay. And it was a well-known species of magnolia. And I think it was magnolia cobus. Um, but the plants, when they flowered, had a different number of petals to the 
to the modern Magnolia cobus. Ah. So it was actually different. Yes. You know, after all those thousands of years, the plant had evolved more or less petals. I can't remember yes, which way yes, around yes. it went because it was an article I read years and years and years ago. But they've raised this plant. Uh, it is different to the current form and they've given it a cultivar name. I can't remember what it is because it is so different from the, the current form mm. of the species. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think it's been sold on as a, as a, as a garden plant, uh, uh, as a different form. There so, you go. Yeah, so some amazing things do happen. So they do. It's great to be able to keep your uh, eye on some of that scientific literature coming oh, out. Oh, it's fascinating, mm. absolutely fascinating. We've got quite a few callers. Oh, so good. We'll, we'll go to our next one. We have uh, Carol out in East Bentley. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, um Oh, I forgot. Oh, Stephen, it's all right. Stephen. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, it's all right, Mary. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask a question about azaleas. They're yep. about a year old mm-hmm. and two are, are, are flowering. Mm-hmm. That's all right. But another two are starting to get yellow leaves. Yeah, well, some cultivars of azaleas will have a lot of foliage go discoloured at this time of the year as they're getting ready to shoot in the spring. So it may be quite quite natural for those particular azaleas to go yellow. Um, alternatively, is it all the leaves or is it just the older leaves? Just the older yeah, leaves. Yeah, well, I, look, I think that's perfectly fine. If it was the newer leaves towards the top, I'd start to worry it might be wet feet or it could be, um, it could in fact be too much alkalinity in the soil. But if you've got other azaleas nearby and they're fine, uh, I'd just say it's the varieties that you've planted and that it's natural for them to go yellow at this time of the year. And when the spring comes on, all the new growth will come on, the yellow leaves will probably drop off uh, and then the plants will look fine again. Oh, good. If there's any down the bottom, should I give it a drink of sea salt? You know, yellow you, leaves down the bottom of the You can't the do any harm by can't giving them a drink with that. So it's yeah. certainly certainly not a bad idea. Okay. But I don't think it's it's something that you should be worrying about at this stage. I'll examine them further and, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. That's a okay. pleasure. Bye. Bye. Next up, we've got Gwen Elliott online. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a little thought I thought I'd, I'd mention. Um, you spoke earlier about frost and uh, speaking to other gardeners in recent days. Um, some people have been considerably affected by frost this year. Um, it's been a bit patchy, you know. In some areas, our oh, plants are looking dreadful and other areas they've missed out in, in completely. But one of the things that I thought was, I think is it's worth mentioning, is that it's a good time to use one of the seaweed products now. Um, whether you choose Maxicrop Sea Soul, Natura Kelp or whatever you've got in the, the cupboard, but um, the seaweed products on their own are not a fertiliser that will cause new growth, cause new growth that will get burnt again. But what they're designed to do is strengthen the cell walls of plants and give them a bit of resistance. Um, don't add power feed or whatever other um, boost to give things growth. Just go for the straight seaweed. Um, and the other thing, of course, is as Stephen said, don't prune back your frosted feathers. Um, affected foliage, let it stay there to protect the bush for the rest. But do you agree with all that, Stephen? Oh, yes, I certainly do. Um, uh, I mean, the seaweed products, people people are still using them as fertilisers and they're Mm. not. Uh, And it's something I guess we should be reinforcing, and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, 
it's I always use the analogy that when you feed a plant, you're giving it something like a, a, a meal. Hmm. Uh, when you give them something like a seaweed product, you're giving them something like a tonic. So it's yep. more it's more the pill to make you feel good uh, than the four-course meal. Uh, yeah. And so you've got to look at it as in quite a different way. And uh, so you don't use one to the exclusion of the other. The seaweed products are a different thing. Hmm. And, yeah. and certainly from you know, what we're told about the seaweed products, they do help um, uh, 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 solve some of the frost damage issues because they do thicken the cell walls. So uh, it's certainly helpful in that respect as well. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yep. Just thought I'd mention that little one because there are some people very concerned um, for the welfare of their plants at the moment because it's been, you know, pretty pretty frosty in some areas, including where we are here at Berwick. Yeah, and it's certainly been cold up at Macedon, Gwen. As soon as I got back from France, it was sort of wham. <laughs> uh, my house was like an icebox when I opened the door, and uh, and certainly I had lots of black plants. My plectranthuses uh, have all decided enough's enough for yep. this year, so they'll come back from the roots, but they're, they've been blackened dreadfully. And, of course, the winter flowering ones, that's very sad because I, I lost the crop. Yeah. Uh, and my iachromas are all black and my Abyssinian bananas have turned to sludge. And, oh. Yeah, and so, yeah, there's lots of stuff around the garden that's looking decidedly iffy, but most of it will come back again. I've just got to be patient and just leave the plants alone, don't prune them, don't get stuck in and get that tidy mind uh, happening. Not that I have one of those. Um, and uh, once the spring comes on and the frosts are definitely over, then you get stuck in and prune. Feel free to talk to them at the moment, though. Yeah. Oh, yes, make them feel better. Yes, yes, we love you and you will come back, is what you say. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. Please stay with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, okay. keep warm and have fun. All right, thanks, thanks Gwen. Gwen. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we have Janet in St Kilda. Good morning, Janet. Oh, good morning, Stephen and Pam. Um, Steve and I, and Pam, I have um, a parrot plant. Yeah. Very thick looking. The yes. main stems are yellow. It used, it was in the garden under the magnolia tree, but it's now in a pot mm. on the front veranda where it gets the morning sun. Yeah. Um, is there anything I can do to revive it? It hasn't uh, got any flowers on it at the no, moment. Uh, I mean, look, it's, it's the cold. Um, I mean, they're a tropical plant, so yeah. they're n- it's one of the empatians, and I can't remember what the yeah, species I, is. Yeah, I, I asked Mr Google that, and he said it was an, um, a succulent. Yeah, well, they're a type of empatians, and they have this funny orange and yellow and yeah, funny little flower on it, which mm. sort of, if you squint at it, could I look know. like a parrot. With imagination. Yeah, with a bit of imagination. <laughs> um, and look, they're very succulent, so keep it as dry as you can. Yeah because there'll be plenty of moisture still in the stem, so don't water it uh, no. during the cold weather. Um, I leave uh, it on the veranda in, with morning sun? Uh, yes, I would leave it on the veranda, although if... Have you had any actual frosts where you are? No, I'm glad if- so you don't get yeah, frost. No, I didn't think so. Uh, so if you're not near the sea and you're not getting frost, then yes, the morning sun will be fine. You do have to be careful putting things that are frost tender where they get the morning sun if you've had a frost because oh, okay. you get the sudden change of temperature when the morning sun comes in on them and you need to thaw plants gently 
if they've had a frost on them. So doing that in a frosty area would be a bad idea. But where you are, it probably is a good idea to give it that morning sun. I would do absolutely nothing to it at the moment. I wouldn't add any water. I wouldn't add anything to it. I would just leave it alone until um, probably mid-September and it will still look pretty frowsy by then. Uh, And then I would start with some seaweed um, and uh, and then probably a few weeks after that I'd give it a light feed with something. Uh, And then once it starts to shoot again, which I'm fairly confident it will once you get into the warm weather mm-hmm. then go through and clean out any of the damaged dead and miserable yeah. looking stuff mm-hmm. and refurbish the bush at that time oh okay we were in um, new zealand recently and oh in a, a beautiful hot house there was one growing and I thought, oh i won't throw mine out at my kids yeah look and in fact <laughs> that you back. know if you were going to grow them really well you really do need a hot house to keep them looking good all year round in fact they'll grow flower and look gorgeous all year if they're in an equitable climate yeah. All year, yeah. so if you did have that lovely uh, heated greenhouse, that would be the yeah, perfect be place fine. to grow your parrot <laughs> plant. Oh, anyway, look, thank you very much for that. That's a pleasure. Bye. Yes, very fun thing, the parrot plant. Oh, it's yes. another one of those great novelty things that you know children of all ages find very entertaining. That's right. Mm. That's exactly right. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you'd like to jump on the phone lines. We're running through until 9.15, so you do have a little bit of time. That number again is 94190155. That's 94190155. Stephen, are you still writing for the drum? No, I haven't for a while. Okay. Um, not for any other reason that I've just not had a lot of well, time. Well, you've been away. And um, and I have to say, as much as it's fun to write for some of those sort of things, you don't get paid. No. And uh, uh, we all have to make a living. So I've sort of stepped back from some of that. Um, although I have had a couple of articles accepted for Organic Gardener, so that's quite good and they pay. Um, I had one on spring bulbs in the garden uh, edition before last I think or the last edition and they are holding one of mine for another edition at some stage or another as well so getting a little bit of uh, of work with them which is good mm. um and uh, I'm still working on the next book. Uh, hopefully that will happen eventually. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> hoping too, Stephen. Yeah, oh, yes. This well, book has been sort of... Well, it's been know, a long-term time coming. I it mean, it would have been fine been. If, if I could have gone along with my old um, publisher and just get moving. Yep. Uh, but that hasn't happened, so we've got to move on. And, yeah, things will happen in due course. And now that I'm back on deck again, I must... Ring the publisher and have a chat and say, all right, it's about time we move to the next level with this thing and I get it so. starting to happen. Because yep. um, uh, he was talking about some extra writing in it, some things he wanted me to add, but I haven't had the sort of list of things he wants me to put in yet. So that's probably the first step is to actually get the manuscript up to what he wants, which is rather fun if they want more than they want to edit out. Uh, yeah, because usually it's the other way yeah, around. Usually it's the other way around. So I'm quite chuffed that he actually thinks that I could elaborate on some of the things. Yeah, I've I, I been, think that's great. Yeah, so so I think I'm in the right hands, except that it seems to be taking forever to get there. Uh, but we'll get there eventually. Of course you um, will. And I'd, I'd be really pleased to have another book out. It's been ages since my last one. I know. So, yeah. So I uh, mean, I've I've heard about this one for so long. Oh I've God, just... yes, yes. It, it's become something of a saga. But it, it will be my uh, magnum opus or my opus magnum, whichever way around that goes. Um, and I'm hoping people will find it a really enjoyable and educational book when it mm. comes out. So yep. we'll get there. Something we'll get to there. look forward to. Yeah. Um, just before we go to our next caller, um, I think you, you you have mentioned, and we did mention this two weeks ago, um, 
there is a place for one more couple for the Madagascar oh, trip. Oh yes, look. I but can s- can listeners can you tell listeners a bit more about the dates and things so oh, they yeah. know how quickly they have to be prepared? Well, they to need go to and- get moving fairly fast because we leave on the tenth of uh, of October. In fact, the basically the day after the Garden Lovers Fair at Mount Masson. Oh, yeah. So uh, not far I'm, away. Yeah, I'm going to be rushing to sort of do uh, do both a bit. But anyhow, it doesn't matter. Uh, so we leave, leave on the tenth of October. We get back at the end of October. October. Um, it's about 21 days. Um, uh, we fly in via Mauritius um, and uh, there's some internal flights involved, uh, but the tour costs and things are basically all inclusive uh, of land content because all your meals are covered, all your internal travel, all your guide tips, your park entry fees, um, so about the only thing you need extra cash for is uh, for souvenirs and alcohol, really, or I guess if you want to get your clothes washed and you're not going to do it in your own bathroom. Um, so there's not a lot of extra costs involved. Uh, so it's all up. So you can go on a tour like that feeling confident that you're not going to go and spend the rest of the children's inheritance while you're away. Um, and I would love to get another couple involved. Uh, so either a, a married couple or people who are prepared to twin share. Um, so we've got space for two more people on the tour and then it will be filled. Uh, I'm looking forward to this year's trip. Um, I already know a couple, a few of the people that are coming on board and I think they're going to be really interesting and entertaining people. In fact, one of our attendees used to be in charge of mammals at the Melbourne Zoo. So, oh, great. So we're going to have, even amongst the people So you're going to have there, their expertise. Exactly. Wonderful. I mean, you know, I think that's going to be fantastic. Yes, it will be. Um, and my boss, Kristen at ASA, is also coming, and she's got a background in zoology. Um, so it's going to be a fantastic group. Oh, I think it's going to be fabulous. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to be a bit nervous working with the boss there, but anyhow. No. Uh, it, I'm sure it will be fine. Uh, And having been last year, uh, our local guide's um, general knowledge and and animal knowledge of his uh, fauna is remarkable. So, And he's a lovely man and people will love him. Uh, So I think it's going to be a great tour. So if you've ever thought that you might like to go to Madagascar, uh, they are running the tour again next year, although a friend of mine is going to actually be running the tour. I won't be. Uh, Next year I'm just doing the south of France. Uh, But if you want to go with me, this might be your last chance for a few years. So uh, I definitely recommend... uh, moving on it as quickly as possible because the other thing you've got to do is get your visas and things organised before Mm. you go and that means getting your passport sent off to Sydney. ASA will do it for you, but getting your passport sent off to Sydney to get it stamped by the Honorary Consul General in Sydney and what have you uh, so that when we get to the airport in um, Antananarivo, we're not going to be held up waiting for people to try and get their visas stamped on the spot. So so there's a few things that you need to organise apart from paying for the trip, etc. cetera, um, uh, if you're going to come. But I'd really like to fill the tour. It's limited to 16 people, so it's quite a small number. And that has the advantage, of course, if you're an attendee, that it's not a great big group, Mm. uh, but it has a disadvantage from the tour company's point of view that there's not much meat on it. So if we don't fill the tour, we really don't make much out of it at all. Uh, So it's one of those types of tours that we'd really like to fill. Mm. So if there's... A couple of you out there, even if there's only one out there that would like to book, I mean, we might get two different people who don't even know each other who are prepared to share. So uh, it could be worthwhile. Absolutely. Yeah. So think about it because this is a great opportunity to see one of the world's botanical and zoological hotspots. And ASA uh, stands for Australian Studying Abroad. 
Yep. Because so, I've discovered in the past that if you just type in ASA, it doesn't necessarily get you to the right place. Yeah, yeah. So Australian studying abroad. Uh, otherwise, of course, you can go into my website, find the Madagascan tour, and then go through the link there to go back into ASA to get all of the final details and things because it's just a, a basic pricey of the tour that's on my website. Yep. So if you want the full itinerary, then it will take you back to the ASA website. Yep. And it's a, it's a great company to work for. I find them really efficient and organised and their tours are always well run. Well, I've now travelled, as you know, with them several times and, um, you know, I just love travelling with them. Their tours are fantastic. They are. And I think, well, this last one I just did to France, we had a few um, uh, ASA virgins on board uh, and they were very impressed with uh, the organisation and the places we stayed and, you know, and just the the fine detail of Mm. the tours. I mean, even the book you get, uh, that gives you sort of uh, background history, uh, uh, animals, plants, all sorts of things about the tour you're going on uh, is like a tome. It's huge. And, oh. and so the amount of information that's in that in that little booklet's worth probably about And you get that for every bucks. trip. You yep. get all this background reading before you even go on the trip yep. so that it, yes. Although I have to wonderful. say a lot of people don't do their background reading before they go on the trip. They uh, read it afterwards. Yeah, they read it afterwards. And actually that's actually, some ways it's actually more useful because when you've been there – what you're reading about tends to lock into your head better than if you've not it been there. It then makes sense because yeah, you've just yeah. seen it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually quite good to have all that and it's yep. a great souvenir at the end of the trip. You can oh, always wonderful. go back to it and, and read about what you went to and what you saw and all mm. that sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah, they're, they're a good company to work for. So um, I'm certainly happy to promote any of their tours, but particularly the ones I'm leading. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to our next caller. We have uh, Ron out in Reservoir. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, uh, Rosemary. It's Pam. Oh, Pam. Pat, Pat or Pam? Pam. Pam. All oh, right, oh, Pat and Stephen, is yes. it? Yes. Right. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, look, I want some information on a uh, avocado tree, which I've had for uh, oh, probably four hundred years, probably. Grew it mm. from a pip. Yeah. Um, I think it was about nine years at least since I got any fruit on it. Uh and it hasn't been consistent over the years. This year I've had the most fruit I've ever had from it. Oh, yeah. well done. Uh, probably about 60 uh, fruit there. Gosh. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm a bit worried about when, when it's uh, ready to pick. Um they're this type, I don't know what they are even. They're, well, like a... they're not any particular type. If it was a seedling-raised plant, uh, yep. then it's going to be slightly genetically different from any of the named avocados out there. Right, So yeah. it's, it's, it's yours. It's mine, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. your avocado. It's, it's, so, it's it, my Ron's avocado. Yeah, you yeah, can just call right. it Ron's oh, avocado. Yeah. 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 Uh, although if it's... famous for something, Yeah, you? well, that's fair enough. <laughs> but I was going to say, if it's not a reliable fruiter, I don't think I'd put my name on it, Ron. Oh, no. oh right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard different stories about it, but then I just like your opinion on it. Um, now, you know, the, the, down here they normally a different fruiting time from up where they yeah. normally grow. Mm-hmm. Well, these flowers normally around Christmas, and by January you normally got the, uh, you know, which was which whether you got fruit or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've had fruit since then, and it's now nearly August. Yeah. Uh, it's the longest I've ever left them on the tree, and they still don't want to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last information I got was when the first one falls, uh, 
put it in a bag for a fortnight, uh, and it should be ripe, and then you can start picking them. Yeah, well, that's not bad information, uh, but it will vary from season to season uh, as to when they're going to start getting to the point of falling. Uh, And I would assume, and I'm not an avocado grower because Mount Macedon's probably outside of the gamut for avocados to grow, um, but I would assume that because we've had a particularly cold season this year, um, the sap flow is going to be slower, the avocados are going to ripen slower. So right. I think it's just a matter of patience. Uh, you could pick one and try the same technique. I've tried that. Yeah. Yeah, it's still as hard as when it was on the tree. <laughs> yeah, in which case it might be best to leave them on the tree even longer. All right. Yeah, Good. so um, I, I just think I'd let nature take its course and see what happens. And as yeah, soon as one yeah. uh, comes down, um, try again yeah, and well, see what one happens. Year I, I had the tree almost covered in little ones about an inch diameter, yeah. and they all fall, fell down. Yeah, well, that can happen too with yeah. weather patterns and things being what and they are. There seems to be something eating the tops of the leaves now. I don't know. Could be a possum. Possums. You think of possums? Oh, yeah. Possums love avocado trees. And and the issue you've got there now, if a possum's found your avocado... They're uh, going to hoe into them. It's going to get worse and worse and worse each season. Uh, And so you may have to try and find some way of excluding them from the tree. Uh, yeah, put a, a metal uh, surround around it. Yeah, something like that. If it's if it's an isolated tree and you haven't got, they can't get in from the outside. Yeah, then yeah. putting a a sleeve around the tree might be the way to keep them out. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But they will cause merry hell with your avocado now that they've found it. <laughs> uh, so you need to need to do something about that. I think. Ron. Right. Good. The other thing I might try, Ron, is um, pick another one and put it in a fruit bowl with a banana. Well, I've got one in a banana with a bag with a banana. Oh, you've got the banana in the bag. Bananas, right? But not the the avocado. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I don't think we can give you much better help than that. So I think it's just a matter of wait and see with it. And I think because it has been quite a cold season, they're going to be slower. Yeah. Mm. All right. Oh, that's two things. I've got to leave it on there and, and make sure no uh, possums. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah the, possums the possums are going to become a real problem. Okay. Right. Good. Thanks very much, Steve. Good. That's okay. a pleasure. Okay. Bye. 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 And we're going to Pam in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Oh, no, we're not. We've lost Pam. Might have to try again. Uh, okay. What's going to happen? I don't know. I'm just see if I can get onto her again. No, 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 she's gone. All right. Well, we'll have okay. to have to Pam, hope. Pam, if you Pam want to ring back, yes. we'll uh, try and take your call. Yeah. Yeah, so anyhow. Okay, that number, uh, if you would like to give us a call, we've got another oh, 10, 12 minutes. If you want to jump on the lines, the number is 94190155. That's 94190155. How are your broad beans going, Stephen? They, they, are they getting up there? Yeah, they're good, actually. Um, I don't know whether I told you, but I now grow my broad beans through a piece of weld mesh. Yes. Which I have on on star stakes, yep. and I put the weld mesh up at about oh, about a metre, I suppose, above the ground. Okay. And quite a few of the beans are actually growing through the weld mesh now. Okay. So they're doing quite well. They're, they're coming away really well. Uh, they're quite a long ways off starting to flower and fruit, but yes. they're growing really well, so I'm quite pleased with them. Okay. And the weld mesh is stopping the wind from doing any harm, so... And what I find once they get up through the weld mesh, then everything seems to be fine. They sort of uh, well, mesh is with... a great idea because it's. 
I mean, I've tried all different sorts of methods, like yeah. you know, yeah, string stakes running and every... string, and and yeah. it's and it still doesn't work. No. It's... no, they fall all over the place. They so, do. And I remember when I was on Gardening Australia once, we had one of these viewer tips where somebody suggested you put about. 15 stakes each way and you make oh, a sort of a, a mesh sake. of strings and I Who's tried got time and and I thought for a start you're wasting an awful lot of string that's not going to be used again because that's it right. just ends up as a mess and rots and what have you yep. and all these stakes and yes it might hold them up um but it was a nightmare and so I sort of vaguely thought there's got to be an easier way and that's yes. where I came on the weld mesh idea and the thing I like about it too is I've, the weld mesh is one that's I suppose about four inch squares okay uh, and I lie it on the ground and I put a seed in the middle of each, each. second hole yep. and then on the next row I, I alternate the, the hole. holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah good and idea. And I do that all across so yep. I get my seed nice and evenly planted. Yep. Uh, and then I just lift the whole thing up and put it on the stakes uh, and then I just wait for the beans to grow up through it. Okay. And um, I don't have to touch it again. Yep. And, um, yeah, so the only time it becomes a bit of an issue is when you're pulling everything out, then it becomes a bit of a mess and it can be a bit hard to handle. But the whole season, my broad beans just sit there and they're fine. Yeah. So That's a great idea. Yeah, so I think it works really well and I just keep reusing the same star stakes and the same weld mesh and the only thing I replace is the cable ties that I use because oh, yes. they're easy to hold the weld mesh up is yes, that cable yes, ties yes, are easier yes. than almost anything else. Of course. Um, but you can only use them once. So, um, But that's the only thing that I can't just recycle year after year. Mm. And so when the season's over, I can either turn the weld mesh on its side and use it to grow beans up uh, and use the same star stakes to hold it in place. Exactly. Uh, or I can throw it up on the top of the shed and leave it there till the next season's broad beans are ready to go. Mm. So that's working really well. And the bed of garlic is doing pretty well. Although I don't know that it's growing as well this year as last year. And funny, my a lot garlic's of people, sitting there at the yeah, moment. My, it's healthy enough, but yes, I have to say mine's not as leafy and, and, no, and big just, as I would have thought. Just Sitting there about, what, six inches? Yeah, yeah, mine's probably much the same. And, and doing nothing. Yeah, and I sort of looked at it the other day and thought, you're not growing as well as I was hoping you were going to, so yep. I don't know what Well, what I'm assuming expect. it's just been so cold. Yeah, I and don't it's know. holding it back maybe, and yeah. maybe we'll get a good flush later in the season. And, That's what and, I'm hoping. And it'll bulk up. Um, but it's the same garlic I used last year, which was the stuff that I bought from the, the Tesla's plant fair. Um and it had a French name, Rouge something or another. Uh, and it was lovely garlic last year. And I got really good cloves, even though a lot of people didn't last year. Okay. Uh, so I'm just hoping that uh, it will do the same for me again this year. Mm. And I planted a whole bed of it this year. So uh, <laughs> I will have garlic coming out my Great ears. Great minds think alike. But, I've done the same thing. I've devoted one whole bed in my veggie garden yeah. to garlic. And I've got four different varieties well, in Well, I've there. only got the one. Okay. I only put the, the same one back again that I did last year. Um, but I find if you don't devote the bed to them if you plant anything nearby you've got to keep it well back because garlic doesn't like competition that's right so if i sort of put some lettuces in the bed or something yep. i've got to be really careful i push them well away from the garlic so that they're not competing with each other yep. so i thought this year right i'll just give a whole bed to garlic mm. uh, well that's not? exactly what i thought <laughs> you know and i mean if i don't use it all i can always give some cloves away yep. um but we use a reasonable amount of garlic and in fact i for a long time i used to say all right i need a bulb a week ish uh, I figured on on average that's what I would possibly use right so I needed a bulb a week to use over the 52 weeks of the year and then I needed 
enough bulbs left over to break up into another 52 pieces. To plant for next year. To plant for the next year. So that was the way I sort of worked it out in my yep. head. Okay. Uh, of course, you rarely can keep your garlic in good nick for the whole 52 weeks of the year. That's right. Uh, so it doesn't quite work that way. But at least I knew I was going to have plenty of garlic. Okay. Uh, but this year I just think I threw it to the wind and said, oh, I'll just fill a bed. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not quite – I think I've put more in than I would normally have done. But anyhow, I think that's – Perfectly legit. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, garlic never goes to waste. I always make sure it goes on to somebody else if I can't use it all. So, oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. That's so, the joy of, of, of having, you know, excess produce. Yeah, well, exactly. And, I mean, people will accept a, a bulb of garlic, whereas they might look you in the eye and pretend that they're happy to get those zucchinis. <laughs> No, I've given up even growing zucchinis yeah. because the rest of my family will not eat them. So what's the point? Yeah, well, if yes, if you're not being uh, – and you can be as inventive as you like with a zucchini, but it's still a zucchini. It's still a zucchini. Yeah. And there's so many other things I, I like to experiment with. Yeah. Why waste that bit of space in my veggie garden? Yeah. yeah. I guess the only good thing about zucchinis is that they are pr- uh, sort of easy and they produce vast quantities, but they're not all that tasty. No, they're not. Yeah, so they're really not. Yeah, so I don't know why people get so excited by zucchinis, but anyhow, <laughs> uh, I would rather have something that I really like to eat uh, be as uh, productive as a zucchini. Mm. You know, if I could have asparagus and and artichokes and things that were as productive as zucchinis, oh, wouldn't I'd that be, be great? I'd be very pleased. Yes, <laughs> but they aren't. No, uh, exactly. And that's the other thing that's starting to shoot like mad. Of course, are my globe artichokes. They're oh, right, masses of. Silvery, thistly-like leaves now. Yep. So they're they're doing quite well. Yep. Um, but unfortunately, with my travels overseas and other sundry things and things I've been doing during the year, I just haven't had the time in the veggie garden I should have done. So the broccoli didn't go until far too late, and so it's going to be really late by the time it comes on to into crop because they're still quite small. Um, um, the rhubarb bed, on the other hand, is looking really good. It's and, going to look very good when those tulips yeah, come if my, up. If my tulips come up and do what I'm hoping they're going to do. <laughs> Uh, I think the, the, the rhubarb bed should be fantastic uh, and I'm living off the rhubarb that I pulled apart before I planted the tulips yep. uh, and there was still a lot of leaves on them even though the weather was cool so I cooked up a whole pile of rhubarb and froze it. So we're having that on our breakfast cereal every morning Yep. Uh, and I'm waiting to see those tulips erupt out of the ground. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think that's going to be quite exciting. Uh, and I've got a couple of fallow beds at the moment that I'm going to start digging some manure through and get them ready for spring. Uh, I've got one that's got a bit of weedy oxalis in it that I want to try and deal with. And How are you going to deal with it? Because it's in an edible bed. I'm going to try and dig it out, uh, and I'm going to, there's not a lot of it, and I'm going to try and get it out in shovelfuls and take the whole shovelful away with the bulbs inside it is the plan. Right. But whether that works or not is, of course, another thing. Yep. And then I'm just going to shove them into a black plastic bag and leave them in a corner somewhere where they'll catch the sun on them and cook it. Right. That's the plan. So you're going to lose an awful lot of soil because oh, they go I'll, down very deep. Yeah, I'll lose, you know, well, it's only two or three little clumps of it. I reckon I'll lose two or three shovelfuls of soil is okay. the plan. And I'm not sure I'll get it all, but uh, I'm going to try and deal with it that way. Uh, because obviously if I don't do something, it's just going to get worse and worse in this bed. And I don't know how it got in there, but it's there. Uh, well, see, I've got the same problem. I've yeah. got it in, in the my top veggie garden um, section doesn't have any, yeah. but now I've got it in the other two sections. Yeah. And I, I'm, a year ago, I went to the effort of actually 
we dug, deep dug the yeah. whole thing and sieved it all. Yeah, and you've still got oxalis. And I've still got oxalis yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think if it gets as bad as that, you've just got to live with it and consider the fact that it that's, does go dormant in the summer. Uh, so put all your summer vegetables in there because they're not going to be worried by the oxalis, I guess. Well, mine doesn't die off in the summer. That's doesn't the it? thing. No. Oh. Well, that is a nuisance. Cause... I don't have it in the wintertime. Oh. I get my oxalis coming up in the summertime. Oh, so you must have a different species it's than what a, I've got. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, the one I've got is definitely a winter-growing oxalis. Yeah. Uh, and it's not evident in the summer. So the bed I've got the oxalis in was well, where see, my French beans. Well, see, I wouldn't mind that. I actually don't mind um, a lot of my beds going dormant in wintertime. Yeah. But mine comes up in the summertime. Oh, blast. But the one thing I have found is in, in really hot weather, although it looks awful, mm. unless you've got something like garlic, which doesn't like competition, it actually keeps the soil moist. Yeah. And so I'm actually producing quite yeah. good veggies over summertime yeah, well, in these beds. Well, in that case, you've got to learn to live with it, I guess. There, so I'm just... Yeah, you're going to live with what it. What else do you do? Put the for sale sign up out the front, as, <laughs> as I've said before. Can't do some, that. Can't no, do no, that well, yet. I couldn't do it either. I mean, if Oxalis had taken over all my veggie plots, I'd still have to stay where I am. So, yes, so there you go. Okay. They want you to confirm whether you put the well-meshed horizontal or vertical, oh, and hori- it's horizontal. Horizontal. You just lay it on the ground, sow your seed through it, and then you lift it straight up to about a metre high and tie it to star stakes, which I've put in first. Uh, so I just lift the well-mesh up. Normally it's a two-person job, by the way. Uh, oh, it so, would be. Yeah, you get one on one end and one on the other, and I get on one end and I, I cable-tie that end while the other end's being held up, and then I run around and cable-tie the other one where somebody else is holding it up for me. Um, and if it's a longish bed, I have some star stakes in the middle as well to make sure there's that little bit of extra support. Yep. And so, yes, yeah, so I lay it flat on the ground and then lift it up to a metre or thereabouts if I'm growing normal-sized broad beans. I might add dwarf broad beans are always giant anyway. Uh, they always seem to grow taller than you expect them they to. Do. So I often buy the supposedly dwarf ones, but they still get really tall. Yep. So I've almost come to the conclusion that I might as well just grow ordinary-sized broad beans because they all fall over if you don't have something to hold them up. Mm. So you're putting a little well-mesh ceiling over the bed. Yeah, basically. And so all the broad beans will grow up through the holes of the well-mesh. And if any are sort of trying to grow outside the well-mesh as they get up You have up to just enough, poke it. Yeah, I just sort of poke them in when there's enough foliage there to sort of get them under. And you've just got to be careful you don't snap the top out yep, of them. Yep. Um, and once they're all in place, they stay there. Mm. And it looks neat. It looks very smart. Um, it's tidy. Uh, and everybody's very impressed when they see my broad beans all standing vertical. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and wind is no longer a problem. Well, it isn't. I mean, we had serious winds yesterday and I must go out and check the bed tonight when I get home from work uh, and I'm assuming that if any of the broad beans have fallen over, they'll be the ones that are too short and haven't quite got up through yep. the well mesh yet yep. and if I'm gentle, I can get them up and hold them in place and they'll be fine. Yep. Very quickly, we're going to uh, Helen in Coolaroo. Good morning, Helen, and you're going to have to be extremely quick. Oh, good morning, Pam. Uh, I was just saying, uh, responding to the question about avocados. Oh, yes, yes. Um, they actually don't ripen on the tree. You have yes. to take them off. Yeah, we knew that. And, but and, and if you don't uh, do that, then it can affect the following year's crop. Oh, okay. So, should, so the gentleman yeah. should probably start eating them, taking them off. Well, and he ripening. can't get them to ripen. That was the point. Yeah, well, they don't, they, they, they don't actually ripen on the tree. No, no, but he can't get them to ripen once he's picked them. Oh, that I was see. the point. Yeah. Okay. Yes, All he's right. got some. That, he's got one that he said he's he'd had there for about a fortnight or more. He's picked one and he's tried to ripen it, and yeah. it's not ripening. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, second question. I think Karen Sutherland recommends waiting until oxalis 
flowers and then to actually snip the plant off at the yeah, yeah. ground level. Yeah, you cut it um, preferably just before it flowers because you don't want it to set the seed. Yeah. But that's going to still take... Yeah, Several it years weakens them, but it, it weakens it, them, uh, but it won't get rid of it. It won't get rid of them uh, in any sort of hurry. Uh, I mean, you could put uh, a bed to sleep for a couple of years and just have some sort of plastic covering over it to try and kill the oxalis out, but then you've got a, an area. Then you've that's got to deal with the soil. that's yeah. also yeah, yeah. It's well, 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 sour. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the actual digging up sort of tends to make them spread more. Yes, yeah, you've yeah, got to be I so know. careful because so your really... bulbs fall apart. That's why I'm going to try and deal with mine while I've only got a tiny bit yep. uh, and see if I can't sort of get it out in one spadeful mm. uh, and see what happens. Right. All right. Thank you for but your thank you for yes. your suggestions. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh, well, I believe we've run out of time for yet another week. Oh, goodness me. It goodness goes so fast. Me. Mm. Um, quickly, Stephen, those details of the uh, the Garden Lovers oh, Fair. Oh, yes. Garden Lovers Fair, 7th and 8th of October uh, at Bolabeck, which is 370 Mount Macedon Road. Uh, it's The car park opens at 9 o'clock. The event starts at 10 and finishes at four on both Saturday and Sunday. Um, and uh, I think everybody should be there because it's, uh, it's a great event. Absolutely. So put it in your diaries for that weekend. Mm, excellent. All right. Uh, we will be back, of course, uh, next week. You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We'll be back again at 7.30 next week, running through again till 9.15. In the meantime, stay tuned to uh, 3CR for alternative news. But uh, until next week, bye for now.